So my wife's on a little getaway this weekend with the girls. Actually, I should say this week, since about Tuesday, and she'll get home sometime tonight. And uh, I had a few learning experiences through this week and a few reflections as we come to the close of it. And the first one came when I went to go and get my first grader from school. And I've got the other two little ones each in hand. And uh, we get up to the door where kind of the parents are all waiting for them to be dismissed. And one of the other dads who I have had a couple conversations with, and he looks at me, he's like, oh, you got the whole tribe with you today, huh? I said, yeah, Tiff happens to be in Florida. Uh, she's just having a little girl's getaway weekend or week, and uh, so it's just daddy time. He's like, oh, you surviving? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and uh, so we exchange kind of just normal conversation. And as I leave and we start to separate, he's kind of, hey, <clears throat> stay strong, man. All right, I, I will. I plan on it. Um, you know, I wish that were the only time I had one of those conversations this week. Maybe even a more troubling one. I had a really good friend of mine call on Wednesday, and we were just talking, and he's like, oh, hey, is this the week Tiffany's gone? I said, yeah, it is. She left yesterday. He's like, how you doing, man? <laughs> I'm all right. It's Wednesday. And, uh, and it, his tone doesn't change. How are the girls? They're okay. <laughs> and, and he literally continues and says, um, like, dinner and everything last night went well? Like, you're able to feed them and everything? <laughs> so as this is going on, I'm going, what kind of vibe am I sending off here? <laughs> I've got semi-random people and people who know me pretty well are both wondering, are my girls okay when, when my wife goes away? And uh, so I also found it very interesting we have differences in, in kind of how we approach vacations. So I had a guy's getaway uh, in fall. And, you know, for like the week in advance and kind of texting my friends and we're excited and talking about how the weather's going to be great and what we're looking forward to in the big game. Um, and then I packed my bag and I left. So for Tiff's last week coming up, she's been making sure all the laundry's done. She's been cleaning the house. She went the day before, stocked the fridge completely full of food, told me what kind of meals I could make and prepare. And, and had the whole thing set up. I left and had a schedule, a calendar, about who's getting the girls in the morning and at night, and when I'm on, and when her mother-in-law or my mother-in-law is going to be there, and when my mom's going to be there, and the whole schedule is planned out. I'm like, there seems to be a difference here in how we go on vacation. A couple days during that time, my mother-in-law stays with us, and uh, she's helping with the girls when when I'm at work, and she comes in, and she's got food, and she's got. Uh, activities for the kids and games to play and she basically kind of like it's almost like she's moving in and I'm starting to see that aspect in what my wife did the week before she left and I'm like the apple didn't fall too far from the tree in that one and in the title of this you'll see is how far did you fall so that's the reference for the tree not an Adam and Eve type of a tree but we're gonna look at ourselves and see how far did we fall from the tree and now I've also got to make sure that I apologize to the husbands in here. Because after I talked about this in the last message, I went out and, and was meeting with a, a couple that I hadn't met before. And uh, it only took a couple minutes before she looked at me and said, hey, thanks. I'm like, okay, what for? I said, he now heard that your wife got on vacation by herself. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> and there he is going, like, I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to do that to you. 
So for some of you who are going to have that similar conversation later, my apologies. Uh, didn't mean to do that to you. So we're going to talk today, as your first bullet point on the back will say, we pass our values and behaviors down from generation to generation. And we're going to see how this plays out biblically. And we've also got some other stories to be able to, to share with this. But my first question says, have you ever thought to yourself, man, I've turned out just like my mom. Or I, I'm a spitting image of my father. And for some of you guys, then you might have to go, well, is that a good thing? Like, am I glad that this happened? And for others of you, you may have grown up saying, you know what? I am not turning out like he did. Or I will not repeat the same mistakes that she did. And at that point, we have to see, what are we going to do about that? Because here's kind of the truth in this. If we don't make a concerted effort to make a change, generations repeat themselves. It happens. It's, it's just going gonna, it's gonna to play out naturally. And it's going to play out in a couple of stories that I've found that I think really connect really well that I'll share with you guys. But families tend to pass down their culture. They pass down their values. They pass down their behaviors. They pass down both the good function and the dysfunction. And we see that in a lot of things. A couple of them that are probably the most prominent, we think of as the negative ones. Alcoholism, abuse, poverty, those kinds of things get passed down from generation to generation, as well as different characteristics and traits that we'll see. Selfishness has been shown in studies to be passed down from generation to generation. On the flip side, we can see sacrificial hearts. We can see servant-minded people getting passed down from generation to generation. We'll also see negative lifestyles and attitudes like laziness, being an unproductive member of society. Those things get passed down. On the flip side of that, we'll also see positive lifestyles like motivated, having that achievement and that will to achieve and succeed, having a hardworking attitude. Those things also are viewed from children to parent and get passed down. Now here's a story about uh, a guy by the name of Richard Dugdale was a sociologist, and he also happened to be a member of the New York State Prison Board. And in 1874, he looked kind of at the, those who were incarcerated, and he said, you know what? There seems to be a theme here. In particular, these six really interesting guys here who are incarcerated, and they're from the same family. They've done some pretty rough stuff. What is with that? They're all from the same family. So they got together a kind of a research group, and they started following the family tree back as and back and further and further and looking at it as it stretched out and as it went behind generation to generation. And here's what they found, that they ultimately could trace these six guys back from 1874 to a man in 1720. And here's what they had to say, or here's what the research showed about this man from 1720. He was considered lazy and godless. He had a reputation of being the town troublemaker. He was an alcoholic, and he was viewed as having low moral character. And then what he did was he went and married somebody who was basically identical as he was. And this couple ends up having children. They have six daughters and two sons. And as they follow this tree down, and it keeps spreading out, from 1720 to 1874, there are 1,200 descendants that they've been able to track now. So when they're doing the research, in 1874, they're looking at 1,200 people that all came from this one man. And here's what they show about these 1,200. 
310, at least that they found, currently were homeless. 160 were prostitutes. 180 suffered from drug and alcohol abuse. 150 were criminals who spent time in prison, and some of those being for murder. The report went on then to say, well, what kind of impact does this have on us in society as a whole? And they're looking at it from an economic standpoint. In 1874, they were able to put a number value on the impact of this one guy. And that was, at that time, $1.5 million. I don't know what that translates to now, but a lot more than that. So we can certainly see that the dysfunction from one person doesn't just stop with one person. In this case, it went down to 1,200. So they went a little bit further and they said, okay, if we can see this much bad and dysfunction, what happens if there's good? So is the same gonna happen? So they went to 1703 and they started with a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards because he was a famous preacher. He later became a president or the president of Princeton University. So he was considered a deeply religious man, lived a life of strong moral character, and he was a dedicated family man who married somebody who was like himself. They had children, 11 of them to start with, and those kept going as well in the family tree. So when we get to 1874, there's 1,400 descendants of Jonathan Edwards, and here's what we find then. Along with him, 13 were college presidents. 65 were college professors, 100 were attorneys, 32 were state judges, 85 were authors of classic books, 66 physicians, 80 held political offices, and of that, three of them were state governors, three were state senators, and one was a vice president of the United States. So that's the difference that one person can make as we look through generations. And that's why we're gonna spend time today looking at the generation to generation and what that means and to try to look at our trees in our lives and see where did we fall. So, last week, Pastor Jeremy talked about Abraham and Sarah. So I get this neat little, little follow and continuation to talk about Isaac, their son, and their wife, Rebecca. And that's how we'll be able to follow this line. And the first point, then, that we're gonna be looking at, or the second point in your bulletin, says parents pass down positive examples their children can learn from. So Isaac was raised essentially in what we would consider a Christian home. He had parents who loved God. He had parents who, as we learned last week, didn't always choose plan A and they messed up, but overall they were doing pretty well. They would also be considered as being one of the, the more famous love stories in the Bible they uprooted themselves multiple times, left family, left what they've built behind to just follow God's plan. And they did that together. They also had this interesting time, and we talked a little bit about last week as well, where Abraham and Sarah had doubts on God's plan, and they tried to start a family through different means. So Sarah gave her slave, Hagar, to Abraham, and they had a child, Ishmael. Now, when we look at that at first, you're like, man, what a mistake. What were they thinking? Well, what were they thinking? Sarah's over here saying, I want the best for my husband, and I know he wants a family. I'm not able to do that for him, so what do I do? I lovingly create a family for him. And Abraham, saying the same thing back to Sarah, 
I know she wants a family. I know she feels bad, and this is, this is kind of our option. So I can love her and respect her to do it this way. So Isaac grew up with this as a model. Isaac grew up with parents who had a solid relationship, not only with God, but with each other. And now Isaac's and Rebecca's marriage isn't typical of what we see today. And we don't see a whole lot of, I don't think at least in our culture, arranged marriages. However, as I, as I look with three young girls, I often think, you know, I think there's something to that. I, I wouldn't mind being able to go out and go, oh, I know that family. Okay. Um, and that's essentially then what Abraham did. Abraham was getting old, and he said, hey, my son Isaac doesn't have a wife yet. So he told his lead, lead servants, he said, hey, here's what I want you to do. Go to this family line in this area, be specific, and go and bring back a wife for Isaac. So the servant did. And the whole time, he's going through his mind going, he's traveling a long way and saying, how am I going to find this one? I don't know. Who's, who's the one? What am I supposed to do? So when he arrives in town, he sits by the well, and he prays. And he said, Lord, this is, this is your game, not mine. Help me out here. So here's my idea. Uh, a woman who's got to come out, she's going to offer me a drink from the well. But not only that, uh, let's do something a little bit crazier. She's going to just give all my camels and, and the livestock water too. It's not something that's typical. And before he finishes praying, in comes Rebecca. And he goes through the whole, re- whole regime, and, and uh, they go back to, and meet the family and tells them the whole plan. And, and Rebecca's dad and brother say, yeah, I, I see this is a divine plan. And Rebecca says, yep, I'll go with you. And so at this point, they travel back. And we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 24 in verses 63 to 67. And if you're trying to follow along with the, with the Bible's new pew, you'll see that there's a little bit of differences. I'm looking out of the NIV version. Verse 63, talking about Isaac. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. She took the veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. This isn't necessarily typical. This isn't what we think of now. But oftentimes, this story can be looked at in a different lens. And it's very easy, I would say, to look at that through the lens of a Lifetime movie. Because what do we see there is Pretty much the typical thing kind of plays on, but there's love at first sight, you know, the fireworks are going off, bing, 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 doom, they're together, it's a happy ending. And they have this nice courtship and, and do all this kind of stuff. But in here, there's a completely telltale sign that this is not just love at first sight, they saw the fireworks, and it was instantaneous. And that goes in verse 67, when he says, or when the author says, so she became his wife, first, and he loved her. Love is a choice. Love isn't about sparks and fireworks. Love isn't about the butterflies that we get during those initial dates and those initial years even. I had a really kind of a, I don't know, entertaining, more fun conversation with my wife probably about a year ago. She's a lifetime movie person. Um, every now and then I get dragged into do- watching one with her. And uh, 
so one of those nights we were watching that, and typical story, you know, the, the guy meets a girl, and whoo, it's all infatuation, it's all these butterflies, fireworks are going off, and the girls are all together, and oh, what does it feel like to be with him, and ah, it's awesome, it's magical, and uh, so we're sitting on the couch, and I'm like, hey, sweetie, is that kind of like whenever I walk into the room when I come home? <laughs> What do you mean? It's like, seriously? And we start to look at each other, and I'm like, brings up an interesting point. And so she asked me, she's like, do you really, every time I walk in the door, get all these butterflies? It's like, I, and so we start talking. Remember those first times that, that we were in grad school, and we'd come into class together, and we are starting to kind of do that old dating ritual, and ooh, it's all kind of, it's like, really? That's interesting. It's really not like that. But I would say, it's so much different, but so much better. I think those initial sparks don't have necessarily these fireworks anymore. It's just a whole other avenue of smoldering. And around that same time that we were watching this and having this discussion, unfortunately there was friends and family members, um, couples, who we we're hearing about, and, and here's their conversations that, that we're getting, you know? I just don't feel those butterflies anymore for him. I just don't have that same spark that I used to have for her. We just fell out of love. So we're gonna, we're gonna go our separate ways. If they're missing the boat on seeing love as a daily choice, if they're missing the boat on getting through those initial years and getting to something better and going through the trials, and just giving up, they're not ultimately going to be able to have the experiences that some of us enjoy. They're not going to have some of the experiences that Isaac and Rebecca had, not that they were perfect, and they're not going to have any of the experiences that Abraham and Sarah had in their love story. So Abraham and Sarah provided what a solid marriage looked like for Isaac and Rebecca, and they did it well, but they also did some things not so well. There were some negative behaviors that can be passed down through the generations. And we're going to read about some of these negative behaviors that tend to get passed down as well. And uh, we'll start in Genesis 20, verses 1 and 2. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. We read a little bit about that last week. The fun part is when we get to see generations go through. One generation and six chapters later, let's see how this story continues. In, Isaac, er, in chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. So let's stop there. Same guy, potentially, same story coming in, right? Now, there are two different stories of thought here on this Abimelech. So some schools of thought are like, okay, we can, we can trace the genealogy. We can see the birth records. We've got that down. He's an old guy. Could theoretically be him, given the time period and how long they lived. I think a more plausible idea that I think gains a little bit more support is this Abimelech is the previous one's son. 
which I think is a great parallel as we're going to read on to seeing how Abraham and Abimelech now have sons. And these two have a very similar conversation. Let's go to verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, this is talking about Isaac now, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. We pass down things from generation to generation. Not just the good, but the bad as well. The lies and the deceit were passed down from Abraham to Isaac. The other interesting part in here that we see is, I gave you verse 1 and verse 7 to set the context. What happens right before this lie? In verses 2 to 6, The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give you all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instruction. So Isaac stayed in Gerar right before the next line. So here we have God telling him, Here's where you stay. I've got your back. I'm going to do this thing. Okay, got it. Hey, who's this? My sister. History repeats itself. And what we ultimately see here is a lack of trust. A lack of trust in God. Now, where ultimately could Isaac have gained this lack of trust in his life? Well, I'm glad you asked. And we see this whole apple fall tree thing. Let's jump into it. Genesis 22, where could a young man gain a lack of trust? Let's read verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Oftentimes, this story is taken from the context and from the lens of Abraham. When we read through this, let's switch that and look at it from the point of view and perspective of Isaac. Let's see what he's going through, if we can try and just put our eyes in that idea. Let's continue with verses 7 and 8. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So here we have a child who's essentially been the chosen one. The chosen one in this line, the one who's going to continue the, the path of descendants to Jesus. And he's been walking with his father with this knowledge. Father's been walking with his son with this knowledge. I don't imagine this is the first time that they're going to take a little getaway together up on a mountain. And here they are. They've been traveling for three days together. I'm guessing talking about their faith, exploring, seeing what creation has to offer. And then we get to this point, and he asks, but Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Dad responds, I'm guessing as he has many other times in his life, God's got this. We're good. So at this point in the story, I'm thinking Isaac's like, okay. I'm good with that. 
Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Now it gets tricky. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now what's going through your mind if you're Isaac? Now where are these trust issues starting to come in? Here's earthly father tying you up and putting you on the logs that are meant for the burnt offering. I'm guessing there's a whole lot of questions going on. And I think it's going to heat up in, verses, or in verse 10. Then he, this is Abraham, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What is Isaac thinking at this point? Here you are, strapped down, tied down. Dad's got a knife. No offering has come. At this point, you've got to start to be thinking, is this it? Is this where I'm going down? Is this how it ends for me? God, you've been with me the whole time. You've been making these promises and this? Is this really what's happening? And then does he turn to God and say, you've got to do something about this. You've got to rescue me. This isn't your plan. Do something here. Step in. Where's the offering? Let's go. Come on. What are you going to do? You've shown yourself before. Show it again. I'm guessing when you're in that kind of a situation, where death looks literally at your doorstep, there's got to be some moment. There's got to be a, a divine moment here where he's bargaining and talking with God and really trying to see what's going on. And the story continues. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. For Isaac at this point, we see an answered prayer. Isaac didn't turn his back on God in his life. He led a godly life. He followed God throughout. This moment we often think of in terms of Abraham. But in this moment, I'm looking at the apple with the tree saying, what's going to happen there? You know, some of us may have earthly fathers who have put us in precarious situations. Some of us have had times that we've developed trust issues. And I don't think that's any different than what Isaac went through. I think Isaac must have had at some point a moment when he said, you know what? This may have been an issue for me, but I need, to, I need to go to battle with this one. I need to come to grips with this one. I need to talk to God about this one. We need to wrestle. And i got to make an effort here. i got to change this one. i gotta come, I got to come to grips with this idea. Because the only way we get past something is by facing it. The only way that we can change something from a previous generation, if we're somebody who said, you know what, I don't want to follow in those footsteps. I don't want to be like, my parents. I want to change. It's not going to happen without a concerted effort to make a change. One of those efforts that, that Tiffany and I made early on in our marriage was, in, was uh, based on our communication. And uh, there are often times that we'd finally get into some deeper topics or deeper, deeper discussions. And she would end up mad. I ended up frustrated. And uh, we're kind of going our separate ways and like, what is going on? 
and, and at one point we came together, and, and I don't remember who said it or if we said it at the same time, but like, you know what? For a couple of counselors, we sure can't figure out how to communicate together. We can tell other people about how to do it, but we are not seeing eye to eye. And we started to look at, well, what is this? We, this isn't good, so we gotta figure this out and what it is that we're not able to just get through a conversation. So we started to look at the trees. It's just as one example. So from, from my standpoint, uh, when I look at siblings, I've got two older sisters. I was an oopsie at the end, so there's a pretty good gap there. So for me, a lot of my time spent at home, I was the only child. So it wasn't too hard, I don't think, to be able to be heard. In contrast to that, Tiffany is the middle of five girls. I've seen them together in action. Uh, sometimes those conversations, when they're trying to be heard, get a little bit rustled. So for her, a typical conversation when we would start talking was at a different pace and, and tempo and, and volume than I'm used to. So I'd shudder, like, no, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm not talking. And for her then to look at it and say, what is your deal? Why are you, what are you shutting down for? Why can't we have this conversation? We had to try to just work through some of that stuff and those communication ideas because you know, we're not, neither one of us was, essentially we can look at it, neither one of us was wrong. It was just different. And when we're able to come to the table and make an effort to make that change, then we're able to do that and ultimately have way better communication from that point forward. And there's two other things that we're gonna highlight here uh, that we also did during this process. And number one would be you seek God, first and foremost. So Abraham and Sarah couldn't get pregnant. Ten years they spent, childless, trying to figure out what is going on here. And as we talked about, they didn't choose plan A or God's plan. They didn't wait on his timing. They took matters into their own hands and tried to do it a different way. I'm guessing Isaac took some of that in. He's a young boy with an older brother who essentially gets sent off. There's got to be some tension between mom and dad at that point. He's got to look at that and at some point said, you know what? I'm not doing that. I know what we have here. I've seen that. That didn't end as well as it could have. We are not going down that road. And then we see what happened with Isaac. In chapter 25, verse 21, I don't have it up on the board, so just follow along with me here. He made an effort to change. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. What happens? The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. He made an effort to change, and he sought out God for help in making that change. The other thing that we want to do is seek others. We're never meant to do this life alone. We come here corporately to worship on Sundays because God has a plan that says, my people should be together. And whether you're working through something yet from childhood or whether you're working on something from marriage right now or just in your personal life or you're frustrated, whatever your issues are, you're not meant to do that alone. We've got a community here. Rely on one another. You've got friends. Go to them. If you're not currently a part of a home discipleship group that we tag in HDG, a lot of great stuff happens there. There's a small family to be a part of 
that you work through this type of thing on. And I also understand some of this stuff that we're talking about, some of these generational issues that we, we get from parents, grandparents that, that get brought on to us, some of that stuff may take a little bit more work. We have a wonderful counseling program here. We have courses, if you haven't gone through things, like uh, character development, relational development, and journey groups. Those will work through those with you. That's what they're there for. How do we get from where we are today to becoming more like Jesus? How do we get to fulfill the promise that he's made us? How do we become a better version of ourselves? We do it with others. And as we're working on ourselves, I want to flip the coin a little bit. Because as we leave here, we've got a lot of people in our community that don't know the Lord. We've got a lot of people in our community who are hurting. We've got a lot of names on that bridge. If you guys were here in November, we have a lot of people on that name, a lot of people on that bridge who I haven't seen yet. We have to continue to be praying for them. We have to continue to be seeking them. Because ultimately, what we've heard in those original stories that I gave you earlier, generations are impacted. It's not just one. You're not trying to reach one person. As we see 150 years later, you're reaching 1,200 and 1,400 others. When we start to put our minds in a context that if, if I'm a father and I'm looking at kids, sure, I've, I've got three, but it doesn't end there. There's going to be generations that go in my actions and how I hold myself and the things that I intentionally pass down will be passed down from, for generation and generation and generation. So I guess as, as we conclude, let's conclude with a little bit of a challenge or a question, something to ponder. What's your generational impact going to be? Maybe it's in your own family. How are you intentionally trying to work through multiple generations? What lasting impact do you have? What happens if you change one person out there? What impact can they have? What happens if you take one person out of that tree somewhere in that first story and there's a new tree with 1,400 other good ones instead of following in line and creating that more of a mess? What can we do here for generations to come?